speaking. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you if you've ever heard of a television show. It's sort of an obscure show. You may have not heard of it before, uh, but it's by uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. You ever heard of that? I think it's called Fixer Upper. And uh, the real reason that uh, I moved to Nacogdoches was this is as close as I could get my wife to Waco, Texas. <laughs> no, if you've seen the show, you know that uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines um, meet with a new homeowner who has uh, purchased a fixer-upper, uh, a house that needs some improvement. And, and they go in and they look through the house and they take a few suggestions uh, from the homeowners, but really they just whisk the new owners away and Chip and uh, Joanna just bring their genius to the house and they renovate everything. Uh, they replace the floors, the walls, they remove some of the walls, they, they redo the landscaping, they put furniture in. And then at the end of the show, or really about halfway through the show, they bring the family back and they stand in the street behind these big screens. And if you've seen the show, you know the question that one of them asks, I think it's Joanna, she will say, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? And then they pull the screens back and the husband and wife cry for a little while and... <laughs> That's the emotional part. But then the show gets really good because then they go into the home and the rest of the show is just showing the video footage of the changes, the before and after shots. And if you've never seen this, uh, you need to watch it at least once because it, it is amazing. Sometimes it's very difficult to even recognize the old house in the new house, especially when they show the kitchens and they show how the walls have moved around. It is remarkable the change that uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines make in those homes. Well, that is not unlike what God wants to do in us. Now, certainly salvation is about more than just being fixed up a little bit. Uh, we were dead in our sins before we knew Christ. We're guilty of sin and the penalty of sin is death. And, and through salvation, we have been resurrected. We have been given a new life, forgiven, adopted into the family of God. And, and certainly that's the greatest miracle that ever happens. But at that point, until God takes us home to be with him, we are in the process of being God's fixer-upper. And so what I want to talk about this morning is uh, how that process takes place in our lives. How can we be God's fixer-upper and what does it look like when that's, uh, when that's taking place? Probably the best example of a fixer-upper in Scripture is the very author of the book that we're studying, the book of Philippians. Uh, its human author is named Paul. And Paul was a man prior to being a Christian who persecuted Christians. In fact, he was the man who was charged with hunting Christians down, people who proclaimed Jesus Christ, arresting them, and then having them executed because of their faith in Christ. And so that was his job. That was his passion in life until Paul encountered personally uh, Jesus Christ, when Paul really embraced the gospel, God saved him, forgave him, God adopted in him into his family, and then God began to do the process of fixing up Paul. And by the time we get to the writing of the book of Philippians, Paul has completely changed. It's hard to recognize the old Paul in the new Paul. In fact, at this point, when Paul writes the book of Philippians, now he is in jail. 
And he is in jail, interestingly enough, for the same thing that he had put others in jail for. Now, he is in jail for proclaiming Christ, and he is likely awaiting his execution. And so, it, it has just been a complete about face. And now Paul stands condemned for the same thing that he condemned others for. And by the way, we'll see as we get to the end of chapter one, Paul's pretty happy about it because Paul will say, for me to live is Christ and what? To die is gain. And so Paul was God's fixer upper. And so as we go through the book of Philippians, we're going to see how we can be God's fixer upper as well. And so we started last week in our study of the book of Philippians. We said we were going to spend 15, I'm sorry, 13 weeks going through the book of Philippians. We, we said, first of all, we should understand that this is a book of, it's a short book, it's just about a hundred verses long, but this is a book that tells us about joy. The apostle Paul, as we said, was a prisoner in Rome. He was likely waiting his execution, but at the same time, the apostle Paul was probably the most joy-filled person in the entire city. And we can see that joy as we read through the book of Philippians, and it'll be fun as we go through and try to determine why was he so joyful, though his circumstances were so difficult. And so one of the things we'll learn as we go through the book is how we can know the joy that Paul knew even when we face life's most difficult times. Now, we said that's well that uh, the book of Philippians, while it's uh, about 100 verses, it's, it's divided into four chapters, and each chapter really has its own theme. And the theme of chapter one is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uses that word six times in these few verses. The whole first chapter is about the gospel. Now, we said last week the gospel is simply the fact, the good news that Jesus has made a way that we can have a right relationship with God. That Jesus through his death has made a way that if we will put our faith and trust in him and make him the Lord of our lives, then God will adopt us into his family. That is the good news. That's the gospel. And so all of Philippians chapter one is just really focused on the gospel. We talked about the nature of the gospel last week. This week we're going to talk about the tracks, the marks that the gospel leaves in our lives when we embrace it. And then over the next two weeks, we're going to continue to talk about the gospel, the whole first chapter is about the gospel. Now, I gave you last week a little bit of a challenge. The Philippians challenge, some of you are calling it on social media, I like that. I've challenged you to read one chapter in the book of Philippians every day uh, until September 3rd. That's when we're gonna wrap up this series, that's when we'll be finished with the book of Philippians for some while. Uh, could you read just one chapter a day? Now, if you're already doing some Bible reading, don't stop that. Don't get out of what you're doing, but just add this to it. If you're not doing some daily Bible reading, let this be your Bible reading for the next few weeks. And if you'll read just one chapter a day and then write down one thing you learned from that chapter, I promise this will be revolutionary in your life by the time we get to the end. Now, I know a lot of you are doing it because you're posting it on social media, and I appreciate that. And so if you post it, uh, post it with the hashtag FBCNAC, and we can get on and see what everybody's posting. Every time I've pulled up Facebook or Instagram this week, I have just been inundated with people in our church and even in our community who are reading the book of Philippians and who are posting just some fantastic things that they've learned. Now, some of those things are really profound. Some of them are pretty simple, and that's just the way it'll go as you read through this. But but, but read it and write down in your journal or online, however you want to do it, write down one thing you learn every day. Now, some of you have been doing this for a week, and so now you're on your second run through of Philippians. Now, the first two or three times, it'll be pretty easy to find something that uh, new that you've learned uh, because you're just now going through it in this uh, concerted way. 
Uh, but let me tell you, after you get through about four or five times, it's going to be more difficult. It's going to be tempting to just uh, say, well, I've got everything in the book of Philippians and just move on. But uh, persevere, if you will. Because once you get to 10, 11, 12 times through the book of Philippians, if you do this every day, you'll, you'll get through it over 20 times before we get to September 3rd. But once you get to 10 or 15 times, you're going to begin to see some things that you have never seen before and that you never would have seen had you not done this over and over and over. And I promise you, it'll be worth it. Our Philippians challenge, and even if you're, this is your first Sunday, uh, to hear about this. I hope you just join in with us. And uh, even if you don't get every single day, uh, just, just pick up where you left off and let's see how many days we can get and let's read together over and over through the book of Philippians in these few weeks. So when we come to chapter 1 verse 9, that's where we're going to be this morning. Chapter 1 verse 9, we see that the apostle Paul is going to pray for his friends in Philippi. And he's going to pray that the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, that it'll be reflected in their lives, that uh, their embrace of the gospel will make a difference in their lives, that something will be different about who they are because of their exposure to the gospel, that the gospel would leave some footprints, some, some tracks in their lives. And you know, for us, if we've embraced the gospel, you ought to be able to see it in how we live. You ought to be able to see it in our attitudes. You ought to be able to see it in our daily lives. And so when Paul prays for the church at Philippi, that they would know these things, that they would experience these markers for the gospel, he also, by extension, prays for us that each of us will also have these same indicators, these same signs in our lives. And so we're going to read verses 9 through 11. It's just one sentence in the original language. And I'll tell you, we really have to put our thinking caps on to get through this, uh, this sentence. It's a complex sentence. In fact, I'd love one of our English professors out there to diagram this for me this week and, and send it to me. I tried to do it this last week, just my little rudimentary diagramming skills. And it's a, it's a very complex sentence and it, it takes some elbow grease to get through it, but God's word was meant that God's people could understand, right? And so if we go through this just a little bit at a time, we'll be able to see clearly here are the markers of the gospel in our lives. So look at verse nine. He says, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Here are the things that ought to be evident in our lives if we've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, there ought to be a continual growth in selflessness. There ought to be a continual growth in our life in selflessness. Now, let's look back at verse nine because I want you to see this in the text. He says in verse nine that I, I pray for this, that your love will keep on growing. Your Bible might say that your love will abound still more. He's talking about growing love. Now, if we're not careful, this is one of those phrases that we'll just sort of pass over in Scripture. Of course, everybody ought to love more. And, and we don't, if we're not careful, we don't catch the real practical application of this 
But, but it's here for a reason. This is not just some sentimental phrase, meaningless phrase. This is here for a reason. What does he mean when he says, I pray that your love will continue to grow? Well, if you notice, the word love is not really given an object here. He doesn't say your love for God or your love for your fellow Christians or your love for people outside the church. It's, it's just a general, your love. So what does love mean? Well, love, and listen to this because when you really catch the definition of love, it'll, it'll change how you love people and how you love God. Love, when you boil it down to its essence, means this, to put yourself last. To love somebody, to love something, to love the Lord means always to put yourself last. So how do you love your spouse? How do you love your spouse? Well, you see that your spouse has certain certain interest. You see that your, your spouse has certain needs and then you have things that you want to do. You have your own needs, but when you put your spouse's needs ahead of your needs, then you have shown love to your spouse. See, oftentimes we think about love and we think about this sentimental thing and, you know, goosebumps and, 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 and things like that, but that's not what love is. Biblically, love is recognizing that you have needs and that somebody else has needs and putting their needs ahead of your needs. That's love. When you love your parents, what does it mean for a child to love his parents? Well, for a child to love his or her parents, he recognizes that his parents have certain desires. That his, his parents want certain things to happen. And even though the child wants to do his own thing, when he does what the parents want him to do instead of what he wants to do, he puts himself last. He has just shown love to his parents. How do we show love to God? Well, we show love to God the same way. We recognize that God has things that are important to him, that, that God has certain expectations, that God has not needs, but God has, uh, has, has desires, and we have desires. And when we submit our desires to him, and we do what we know pleases him instead of what might please us, then we show love to God. Love simply means to put yourself last. And so here he says, one of the marks that you've embraced the gospel one of the things that will happen when a person is genuinely saved is that your love, your putting yourself last, will continue to grow. Now, why is this so important? Well, I think it's important for a few reasons. For, first of all, it's important because when we put ourselves last, we are being Christ-like. Christ-like. We're going to see, especially in chapter 2, when we get to Philippians chapter 2 in a few weeks, we're going to see that Christ, his whole life was about putting himself last and putting other people first. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, it's going to say that, that Jesus, though he had the privilege of being God, did not consider that as an opportunity to bless himself, but he considered this, this power, this wealth as an opportunity to bless us. And so he came and he was born and he lived and he died a sacrificial death. You see, Jesus was, was all about putting himself last and putting us first. And so when we do that, we are being Christ-like, Christ-like. That's why it's important. It's also important because this is the true mark of maturity. How, how do you know if a Christian is a mature Christian? Are you a mature Christian? You know, oftentimes we, we, we want to measure maturity by uh, Bible knowledge, well, I'm a mature Christian because I know a lot about the Bible. Uh, but, but you can't measure maturity on Bible knowledge. 
Uh, you can't measure maturity on how long you have been a Christian. I know some people have been a Christian for 40 or 50 years, but spiritually they're infants. They, they've not matured at all. And so you can't measure it by Bible knowledge. You can't measure it by how long you've been a Christian. So how do we measure it? Well, you measure it by selflessness. You measure it by how often you hear this voice in your head that says, I should have it my way. But you respond by saying, no, I will consider others as more important than myself, which is uh, a verse we'll get to in Philippians chapter two. It says exactly that. But it's when you are selfless, then you are, then you are mature. That's the mark of maturity. I wonder how many of you parents, um, when your kids were young or while your kids were young, you, you have them stand against the wall or the back of the door and you take a pencil and you make a mark on the wall. Any of you did that just to, just to show how tall they've grown? And then so six months later, you have them stand there and you put another mark. Now, why do you do that? Because you do that because you want to have some visual uh, representation that they're growing. You want to you have something you can celebrate. You want to have something that you can see that shows that they are growing, that you can show them that there's some real growth that's taking place. Now, what is the way that we can, that we can measure our spiritual growth? I mean, it's not a mark on the back of the door. So how do we measure our spiritual growth? Well, you ought to be able to see real tangible ways in your life that you were growing in your love, that, that you were growing in your practice of putting other people ahead of yourself, of putting the needs of others, the desires of others ahead of your own needs. You ought to be able to see it in the way you spend your money or the way you give your money. You ought to just be able to see some ways that I am putting the needs of others ahead of my own personal needs. You ought to be able to see it in how you spend your money. You ought to be able to see it in how you invest your time. I was so impressed this last week to see so many adults come and work in vacation Bible school. I know some people took off work for a week. Some people took their vacation for a week. It cost some people greatly, but they were committed to coming and serving in vacation Bible school. And see, you ought to be able to see in the way that you invest your time that you're putting others ahead of yourself. And, and you ought to be able to see it in the things you complain about. If you just listen to the things that people complain about, you can tell a lot about their heart, right? And if your complaints are all about, it's not fair to me, and I had to wait in line too long, and, and somebody hurt my feelings, if your complaints are all about you, then that says something about your spiritual m maturity. You, we, we ought to be able to see in real ways in our lives that we're putting the needs of others ahead of our own needs. And so he says that when we embrace the gospel, the first thing that ought to happen in our lives is that we ought to continue to grow in selflessness. That ought to be true of all of us. But, but let's continue reading because I want you to see the second, the second way the gospel is reflected in me, and that is this. We will have our conduct informed by Scripture. Our conduct informed by Scripture. So look back at verse 9. He says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge in knowledge. Now he doesn't say, I pray that your knowledge will grow. He, he doesn't say, I pray that you'll know more about scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't pray that they would know more about theology, that they would know more about apologetics, that they would know more about anything like that. No, no, he prays that their, 
that their love would grow, their conduct would change, and it would be supported by knowledge. You see, scripture knowledge, knowing about the Bible is important, but it's only important if it is a catalyst and it is an instruction for changed living. Does that make sense? Just to know more about the Bible and it not impact how we live is, is, is not helpful, it's not valuable Bible knowledge. When we study the scripture, it ought to be so that our lives would change. That's why he says that I pray that your love, your conduct would grow and change based on the knowledge that you have. The reason I preach and, and the reason any, any preacher preaches, if he's, if he's true to scripture, is not so that you will know more about the Bible. No, the reason I preach is so that the Bible would be reflected more in the way that you live. The reason we're doing this Philippians challenge is not so that you'd be an expert on the book of Philippians. The reason we're doing this Philippians challenge is because I want our lives to change over the next 13 weeks. You know, it's James, the half-brother of Jesus, I think, that gives the best illustration of this. Over in his epistle, he says, um, imagine a person goes up to a mirror and looks at his face in the mirror and notices that there's a problem. I mean, a fixable problem, right? And so he notices that he's got some ketchup or some mustard, you know, on his cheek or something. And he, and he notes the problem. I have ketchup on my face. And then he walks away from the mirror and he never does anything about the ketchup on his face. And, and James says we would, we would call that person a foolish person because the whole point of looking into a mirror is so that you can fix what's wrong. And the whole point of looking into God's word, to studying God's word, is so that God would be honored and we could fix what is wrong. One of the marks of a person uh, one of the ways the gospel is reflected, I should say, in the, in the life of a person who knows, um, who knows the Lord is that our conduct will be informed by the word. Now, the third thing, let's continue to read. We're, we're still in verse, uh, well, let's just go back to verse 9 because this is, this is all linked together. He says, I, and, I, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment. Now, that word discernment there, that means to tell the difference uh, in a practical way between what's right and wrong. Not just to know in your head, but to, but to be able to live out in your life the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And then he, let's go on reading verse 10. So that you may approve, that means that you would be able to determine. That word there is the word that they used of assaying valuable metals to determine if they were genuine. So they would you know, test something to see if it was uh, gold or not so that you would be able to approve the things that are superior. Your Bible may say the things that are, that are excellent. And what that says, when we, when we bring all of that together, is that you will know what really matters. That you'd know what really matters. You see, when, when we have been impacted by the gospel, the, the question is not just... Um, what is right or wrong. No, Paul takes it a step further. It's not a question of what's, what's right or wrong, what's good or bad. The question is what is good or best. Well, what Paul is saying is that a, is that a person, who, a person who, is, uh, who, who is impacted by the gospel will live such a significant life 
We'll, we'll understand what is most valuable. We'll understand what really matters. We'll be able to choose the best over the good. And then his life will be characterized by, by that kind of living. You know, you know, oftentimes we think of maturity as um, it's just, well, I'm going to choose the right thing instead of the wrong thing. But in, in much of our lives, that's not the real question. It's not right or wrong as much as it's, um, as it's what's, what's best over what is, what is good. Now, there's nothing wrong with having hobbies. There's nothing wrong with watching television. There's nothing wrong with social media. There's nothing wrong with um, amusement. There's, there's nothing wrong with sports. But listen, church, if we've been touched by the gospel, those things can't characterize our lives. No, our lives need to reflect that we know what really matters. Sure, we can go fish and and, and, and we can go to the movies and, and, and we can pull for our football teams and all, all those things. But our lives should reflect the fact that we know what really matters. Let me tell you how I've observed this over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, one of the first times I met Craig Matson. I don't know if Craig is in here or if he's back working with uh, the children. Craig is Melanie Matson's husband. Melanie leads our children's ministry. And one of the first times I met Craig, he said, one of the reasons why I am in education, one of the reasons why I'm a school teacher is so that I can spend time in the summers helping out my wife's ministry. And when he said that, I thought, you know, there's a man who knows what really matters. Does that make sense? I um, had an opportunity to meet with uh, Stephen and Anna Wyatt, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago or so. I heard they were going on a mission trip, Stephen and Anna, many of you know them. They just had a new baby this week, adopted a new baby this week, and so I'm sure they're on cloud nine this morning, but uh, I, I'd heard about uh, six weeks ago or so that they were going on a mission trip, and I wanted to hear about it, and so I, I sat down with them, and, and I said, well, tell me the story, and they said, well, our 10-year anniversary, wedding anniversary is coming up, and we're trying to figure out where we wanted to go for our 10-year wedding anniversary, and we decided what better place to go than to go to Cuba and share the gospel with lost people for a week. Because we want to leave the right kind of legacy for our children. And I, and I thought, there's a couple who knows what really matters in life. Uh, I met a lady, and I, I've met so many people, so I, I'm sure you're here this morning, and I don't know your name. I can't call your name, but I, I met a lady, I, I think in the last week, maybe even at Vacation Bible School or maybe the week before, but a lady in our church who was telling me her story, and she said uh, that after she retired from work, uh, one of the first things that she did was go down to the Women's Job Corps in the area and, and find out how she could invest her life uh, in um, meeting the needs of troubled women who are trying to get their life back on track. And I thought, well, there's a woman who knows what really matters in life. I, I know we had a bunch of uh, men in our church, uh, Dale Frist and, and John Schoenrock and John Young and Jim Shipp, and, and there's some others, I'm sure I don't know all their names. Uh, and they decided yesterday to uh, celebrate the Blueberry Festival by coming out here and passing out uh, crosses and bottles of water and giving people a kind gospel word. And I, and I thought, you know, there's some men who understand what really matters. I think about a family in my church in Ohio that, that dramatically downsized their house and their standard of living 
so that as they got older and were no longer able to go on mission trips, that they could give money so that other people could go. And I think there are some people who know what really matters. You see, one of the, one of the markers that you'll see in the life of someone who, who has really embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ is that, is that they will exhibit truly significant uh, living. Um, the fourth one is that someone who is following the gospel, who's embraced the gospel, will, will show signposts to the glory of God. Signposts to the glory of God. So I, I want to go back and begin and continue reading in verse 10. He says, so that you may approve the things that are superior and that you may be pure. So that talks about purity. There'll be purity in your life. And blameless, that speaks of your integrity, that you'll have integrity. In the day of Christ, then verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so you'll have the, the evidences in your life of the work of Christ. But then notice what it says, to the glory and to the praise of God. What he says is that the purpose of all of this, all of the purity that you have in your life, all of the integrity that you have, all of it is for the glory and the praise of God. In fact, if you go back, and here's where it's helpful to diagram this whole sentence. If you go back and look at all that he mentions in verses 9 through 11, he says that everything has one purpose. Everything we do is for the glory and the praise of God. You see, for someone whose life is, has been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll see all throughout their lives these signposts that point not to the themselves, but to the glory of God. Now, this is something that's hard for people to understand, I think, who are not, who, who, who don't, haven't experienced the gospel. But, but, but if you know the gospel, if you've embraced the gospel, you'll know what I'm talking about. At the end of the day, nothing really matters except the glory of God. Nothing matters except the glory of God. Not, not the wealth that we've accumulated, not the accomplishments that, uh, that, that are accredited to our name, not uh, the notoriety or the fame that we might have, but nothing, nothing compares, nothing matters except the glory of God. It was, uh, it was a few months ago, my, my high school class uh, celebrated their, our 30-year um, reunion. So that tells you how old I am, 30-year reunion. I really felt old when that happened. Uh, not as old as I felt last week when one of you pulled me aside and said, Pastor, you and your wife will be in the senior adult group in five more years. We're so excited to have you. <laughs> I thought, well, we will change that between now and then. <laughs> Young adults, young adults, the difference between young adults and older adults is whatever, one year past the age of the pastor, okay? So that, that is a floating number. Um, but it was my, uh, it was the, my 30 year high school anniversary and I, and I didn't have an opportunity to go, but I, I followed all of the events on, on social media and um, it was neat to see, you know, photographs of, uh, my old classmates and see how so many of them had changed and many of them hadn't changed. And it was just interesting. And if, um, you know, if you're, if you're old like me, maybe you have some of those memories as well. Uh, but one of the things that made me, made me think about was just what, what it was like 30 years ago when I was a senior in high school. 
And all the things that, I, that concerned me back then, I mean, it, it's, it's tough being a senior in high school, right? And, and there are a lot of things that stress you out. And, and so when I was a senior in high school, you know, who was friends with whom was very important. And I can remember all the stress about, you know, who are my friends and who calls me their friend and, and popularity. And that was a big deal. I mean, we, we stressed over that. There was a lot of energy that went into that. Who was friends with whom? And another thing was... Uh, was who were you dating? Who were you dating? I can remember senior in high school, and that was so important. Who were you dating? Who have you dated? Who wants to date you? Who will you get to date? And a lot of energy poured into, into that, a lot of stress over that, a lot of picking up the phone call, phone uh, receiver, and dialing six of the seven digits of a number, right? And then hanging it back up. And I mean, it was a lot of angst over that. And who, who are you going to date? And then I remember... Um, who, who, who are you going to beat and who's going to beat you and whatever you're interested in? You know, whether it was sports or, or it was band or was, it was academics, you know, who's, who's ahead of whom? And, you know, is somebody going to have a higher score than I have on something? And, I, boy, I was stressed. I just thought that was the most important thing in the world, that I would be first in whatever category I wanted to be first in. And, but you know what? 30 years later, looking back, the, my 30-year perspective, none of that stuff mattered. I mean, from this point, looking back, none of that matters. And even looking into the lives as they have been lived over the last 30 years, none of that has mattered in anybody's life. None of it has mattered. Now, of course, you know, young people need to do their best. I'm not saying kids, you know, just don't worry about it. Nothing matters. Things matter. But all of this, uh, all this fretting over those things, none of that mattered. Now, listen, I'm fretting over some things today. How about you? You, you got some pressures in your life. Maybe you're worried about work. Maybe you're worried about finances. Uh, I'm buying a fixer-upper. Me and my wife are buying a fixer-upper. I'm stressed about that. Uh, we're trying to sell a fixer-upper. We think we have. We hadn't closed on it yet. But uh, So there's some stress over that. I'm trying to move a family across the country. I've got a girl who thinks she's going to college this year. But I've got to figure out a few financial things between now and then. And, and um, there's, just a, there, there's a big to-do list here at the church. I feel like I apologize to somebody every single day that I'm too busy. And that frustrates me. And, 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 and so, you know, I'm frustrated about things today. But you know, the truth is that 30 years from now, whatever you're stressing about today, 30 years from now, you're going to look back and it's going to be pretty insignificant, pretty insignificant. And you're going to say that the only thing that really mattered was the glory of God. And so when a person has embraced the gospel, there are just some things that are going to be true of them. They're going to be putting other people first. You're going to be able to see that over and over in their lives. Their conduct is going to be informed by God's word. You're going to be able to see God's word rubbing the rough edges off in their lives. You're going to, you're going to be able to see that they're living for things that matter. And you're going to be able to see a life that is a signpost for the glory of God. So... Have you seen the show Fixer Upper? I wonder what is your favorite part. You know, the beginning part, uh, I think Chip and Joanna Gaines have, ad have admitted that's, uh, that's mostly just a, a setup. Uh, but the last part is real. It's the before and after shots that everybody wants to see, right? That's why you watch the show. That's why they're so famous. That's why everybody's going to Waco now. It's because of the before and after shots. 
Well, now listen. What Paul is praying is that the people in Philippi would have the same kind of radical change in their lives because they know Jesus. And Paul spoke about what he knew about because he had experienced those changes. And what we learn from this is that you and I can experience the same change if we will embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's do this. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. And I want to extend an invitation to you in two ways. First of all, if you've never embraced the gospel of Christ, I want you to do that today. And people will be standing here at the front. I'll be standing here at the front. And when we sing, you can just step out. People will let you out and you can come and take my hand and say, Pastor, today, I understand that Jesus has paid the penalty for my sins. I want him to forgive me and adopt me into his family. And I want him to begin to do the work of fixing me up and changing me from the inside out. And I, I would encourage you, I ask you to come and let this be the day that God changes your life. Now, many of us, we know the gospel. I mean, we have been saved. But what we need to do is to work to see the changes. We need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to see the changes in our lives so that we live for what's most significant, so that we have in our lives the signposts of God, so that we're putting other people first. Would you surrender again to the Lord and say, I want to see those changes in my life just as Paul prayed that those changes would happen in the lives of those in the church at Philippi. Father, for your honor and glory, change us. For your honor and glory, make us selfless. For your honor and glory, make us live, help us to live for what's most significant. For your honor and glory, do a great work in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.